Thanks for tuning in. Ham Talk Live will be on the air shortly. Please stand by. Thanks for tuning in. Ham Talk Live will be on the air shortly. Please stand by. This episode of Ham Talk Live is brought to you by Tower Electronics. For connectors, cables, and more, call 920-435-2973 or visit pl-259.com. And by ICOM. Heard it? Worked it? Logged it. Visit www.icomamerica.com slash amateur for more information about ICOM radios. It's Ham Radio. everyone it's time for ham talk live it's episode number 236 talking about uh, remote license testing recorded live on thursday november 12th 2020 i'm your host neil rapp wb9 vpg thanks for tuning in to this episode of ham talk live tonight we're joined by marcel steiber ai6ms And we'll take your calls live in a few minutes. Last week here on the show, Jay Adrick, K8CJY, and Lee Height, K8CLI, were here to talk about the new Drake exhibit at the National Voice of America Museum of Broadcasting. So if you missed that show, you can listen anytime at hamtalklive.com or on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. Or you can always catch the rebroadcast of Ham Talk Live over on WTWW 5085 AM Saturday afternoons at about 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That's every Saturday afternoon. Well, we had some technical difficulties a couple of weeks ago. Windows Update decided to run for three hours, and uh, I only gave it two. So uh, the phones were not working correctly when Rob Sherwood was here. So uh, he's actually uh, agreed to come back. So we're going to have him back on next week. And we'll do our uh, questions and answers with him. But in the meantime, he's had a chance to uh, check out the IC705. So we're going to talk about his results uh, from testing the IC705 as well. Uh, But uh, we'll do that next week. So uh, be ready to call in next week and and ask those questions. I know... uh, the phone lines were, were jammed up, and uh, I couldn't get it to answer. So uh, we'll take care of that next week, and I'll, I'll start the computer up a, f- a day early or something. Well, anyway, uh, get your questions ready to go tonight for uh, Marcel, and uh, we'll talk about testing tonight. If you're listening to us live on Thursday night, give us a call, and I'll give you the phone number here so you can have it ready. It's 859 859- 982 
7373. Again, the number 859-982-7373. We'll give that out a few more times uh, before time to call in. Uh, we're we're going to talk a little bit first, and then um, in the final segment, we'll open up the phone line. So uh, we'll give you a chance to do that. Uh, you can also tweet your questions whenever you want. It's uh, at HamTalkLive over on Twitter, and I'll be checking that uh, throughout the evening as well. So we'll get those questions in. And if you're logged in on Spreaker, you can uh, type a comment there as well. So I'll be back with Marcel right after this word from Tower Electronics right here on Ham Talk Live. I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm having an antenna party and I ran out of PL259s. Oh, come in. Thank you. Would silver-plated PL259s from Tower Electronics be too good for your guests? Those will be fine. Thank you. You saved my life the other night. Oh, the PL259s from Tower Electronics? Yes, they were very successful at the antenna party. My antenna works like a charm. Then how can you ever thank me? I'll try to think of something. Don't be caught without PL259s. Visit Tower Electronics at a ham fest near you. Or visit them online anytime at pl-259.com. Or call 920-435-2973. They have adapters, cables, antennas, soldering supplies, and meters, too. Ham Talk Live. The longer you listen, the later it gets. Welcome back to Ham Talk Live. Thanks to Scott and Jill at Tower Electronics for sponsoring the show tonight. They help bring Ham Talk Live your way each and every week. It's great to see them last weekend over at Bedford, Indiana. And now they're down in Florida. They're going to be at Fort Walton Beach, Florida this weekend, November 13th and 14th. Then they'll be in Montgomery, Alabama, November 20th and 21st. Ocala, Florida, December 4th and 5th. Plant City, Florida, December 11th and 12th. Jack Moyer's Tailgate in Orlando, January 16th. Arcadia, Florida, January 23rd. And Dalton, Georgia, February 27th. And, of course, that's all COVID permitting. Uh, but you can find them anytime online at pl-259.com. My guest tonight is Marcel Stieber, AI6MS. Um, he's been an amateur radio operator since 2008 while attending the California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo. And he was the president of the Cal Poly Amateur Radio Club, W6BHZ, and is currently the industry advisor to the club. He graduated with a master's degree in electrical engineering, concentrating on RF and communications, and uh, writing his thesis on radio direction finding network receiver design for low-cost public service applications. Marcel currently serves as the chair of the Cal Poly Electrical Engineering Industry Advisory Board. He is an assistant emergency coordinator in the city of Cupertino, serving as the trustee and technical lead for the Cupertino Aries UHF repeater. W6TDM, and as the project lead for the Cupertino Aries 
ArcNet project, which is building up a high-speed wireless intranet for the emergency responders in Cupertino. Marcel regularly volunteers at local repeater workdays as an RF technician and tower climber and enjoys providing communications for local bike rides and triathlons. He also volunteers as a technical advisor to several event management companies and local repeater groups. He's an ARL Life member and has helped license over 1,400 hams, we'll say, 1,384 to be what we have here uh since 2009 uh mostly most recently working to develop processes and train teams using fully remote examination methods and for more information check out ai6 mike sierra on qrz so marcel welcome to the show thanks so much for having me neil really glad to be here today and and we were talking before the show as as I normally do, and and we didn't get a chance. I, I actually think that that we've we've talked, or at least my students have talked to you, because W six BHZ is a very familiar call sign from School Club Roundup. So, um, quite possible we've we've uh, actually worked each other. That's very very possible. Yeah, the club has gone, goes through its stages of activity and. Always enjoys getting on School Club Roundup. It's always great to talk to other students from around the the nation and sometimes the world even, which is great. So, yeah. Well, we're tying together some of the, the teacher stuff and uh, ham radio tonight because we're talking about testing. And, and some of these things that we're talking about tonight are, are things that I am going through constantly <laughs> with the, trying to test students and and getting ways to electronically test students with hybrid and and then now with the pandemic remote um and and so these are some of the things that that i'm doing all the time but now it's it's coming over into the amateur radio world so there's been a lot of talk about this there's been some going on up in alaska and and you know there's been some experimenting going on the fcc commented that you know yeah it's fine go ahead and try it out Uh, but the pandemic created a, a larger demand for this service and there was some resistance um but you were a part of a group that spearheaded the effort to to make it more available um, so tell us a little bit about how this remote testing came into the the state that it is right now. Yeah, thanks for the intro, Neil. I think you've, you've covered a lot of the key points. I, I kind of want to just start back at the beginning a little bit. The um, FCC uses what is known as a VEC or volunteer exam coordinator since about 1984. It used to be that you had to go to the FCC to get your license. Then in 1984, the FCC said, okay, we're going to allow these volunteer organizations to administer exams, and currently there are 14 active VECs. Um, And then, like you said, yeah, in 2014, um, the FCC actually amended Part 97 and said you can explicitly do remote exams. So they changed some of the uh, verbiage in the the regulations to say, hey, it's fine if if your VEs are not all, so if your volunteer examiners are not all co-located with your, um, the applicants that are taking the test. So that, that had been used for a number of years, so since 2014, um, notably the Anchorage Amateur Radio Club, VEC, up in Alaska, um, they obviously have a lot of challenges with uh, internet and availability just because it's a very um, spread out and widespread uh, uh, state. Uh, and AWRL uh, did a number of sessions, sessions in Antarctica and in Hawaii, 
um, that made the news. You can find some articles on those online uh, using remote exam methods. So those all worked fine. Um, and those we called, uh, you know, proctored remote exams. So the candidate almost always had someone there. Usually they had like one local volunteer examiner and then the other volunteer examiners would be observing remotely. Um, so the, the big change, like you said, now coming into, you know, 2020 uh, with shelter in place, that having that local proctor was a problem for a lot. Um, and it's been a problem for some people for a while with just access or their nearest exam session was a, you know, 200 mile drive away. Uh, but with the with the pandemic, it really, you know, emphasized the need for this. So back in March, uh, I don't know, one or two dozen of us got together initially on Twitter, and then we formed a base camp, just an online collaboration tool to kind of brainstorm what's going to make the most sense here. How can we develop some tools quickly to help support the amateur radio community and continue giving exams? Uh, if you just look at the statistics, uh, you know, once the pandemic hit, the number of exam licenses that were granted you know, minus the backlog of some of the mailed-in sessions from just before the lockdown, uh, it dropped very significantly. So it estimated somewhere in the 80 90% drop in number of exams. Some places were still able to hold in person, but most couldn't. Um, so yeah, so we sat down and said, well, how can we do this? Uh, and the obvious solution would be using some form of video conferencing um, and then some form of computer-based testing. Um, so computer-based testing is not new by any means. Uh, it's been around for quite a while. Uh, uh, exam tools, actually the software we're using now for most remote exams, um, has been used by a lot of VE teams for many, many years doing kind of hybrid in-person exams where students will take or applicants will take the uh, exams on like laptop computers or tablet computers uh, in an exam room still with the VEs. Um, and Anchorage, of course, they're using computer-based exams as well. They have their, you know, one local proctor and then the VEs are remote in their exam software. So. Uh, those have been around for a while, uh, and a lot of that uh, applied very directly to what we're doing in the remote world. So back in March, March 26, I think, 2020, was the very first time uh, that we know of that a fully remote exam was administered for amateur radio, which is pretty exciting. So we uh, had W5YI and a number of volunteer examiners hop on a Zoom call and use the existing exam tool software, which again was designed for in-person exams, to administer uh, an exam. Um, and since then, since March, uh, that group has really uh, sat down and developed and figured out how to improve this. So Exam Tools uh, is developed by uh, Richard Bateman, KD7BBC. Uh, for those that don't know, he's the same guy that runs uh, hamstudy.org and Signal Stuff, the one that makes the uh, super elastic signal stick antennas uh, for your HTs. Um, he doesn't pay me, but I actually recommend them. I've got looking at a bunch of them here <laughs> on my bench. Um, and those actually, the proceeds of that go and help support these efforts. So that's my little plug there for, you know, support uh, ham study and support exam tools by buying uh, super elastic signal sticks from signal stuff. So uh, <laughs> that's my one plug that I'll give. Um, but yeah, since, since March, we sat down and said, okay, well, how do we improve this software, right? So, you know, with that software being designed for in-person, initially it was really, really cumbersome. You had to like remote control the candidate's computer and like enter passwords remotely, which wasn't good for anyone for security or for anything. But we were able to find a way to at least unblock um, and start doing some examinations. And this was pretty important for people like that had been studying for their extra exams uh, that were uh, due to uh, the pools, license pool changed in July of this year, right? So the question pool. So a lot of people that were studying for extra really wanted to get that done. So that was one of the big focuses. 
Plus, just keeping the new flow of now all these people that are at home realized, hey, amateur radio is a great thing, and I should probably get licensed, especially in the pandemic. Um, so we started working on what we called Tier 2, or kind of the version 2 of that software, um, which involved uh, Richard spending you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours coding, um, and a bunch of us volunteers helping write processes and procedures and best practices and you know, uh, kind of... I wouldn't call them rules and regulations, but recommendations and guidelines for how to run these sessions, um, what sort of requirements on the candidate side, what sort of requirements on the VE side, um, how to get teams onboarded, uh, and how to train people to do this. Uh, that new software released in May, end of May, May 26, uh, actually exactly um, uh, two months after that first exam, which is pretty impressive uh, turnaround. And that's really been the game changer. So since then, um, we've run several thousand exams now across uh, dozens of different VE teams uh, and hundreds of volunteer examiners that are helping at these sessions. Some of the biggest sessions are over 100 candidates at once um, and a whole bunch of sessions happening every day with anywhere from, you know, one to 20 candidates uh, at a time coming through and taking their exams. So that's kind of the high level overview and happy to dive into uh, any of those things in detail as you like. Yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about how um, a VE team can decide to do this and offer this, and then also how can somebody take one of these that you know can't do the the normal thing or, or chooses not to? Um, how do they know what teams are doing this, what teams aren't? Um, so let's get into a little bit of that of the you know how can teams do this, and then how can people take them? Yeah, that sounds good. So uh, for people that want to take the exam, uh, it's pretty easy. You just go to hamstudy.org um, slash sessions, or you can click on the sessions button. Um, and that has all the listings for any exams offered using exam tools. It's important to note that there are groups that are still offering in-person exams. Some of these are like drive-in exams where people are in their cars taking exams and volunteer examiners watching them. Um, but you can also click on the online option, and that'll show you all the remote exams available. Um, read the instructions. Some teams are very particular about still serving their local areas because that's traditionally how the VE team model worked. Um, but these days, you know, a lot of teams allow people to test from anywhere as long as they meet the requirements for the FCC um, with a, you know, a U.S. mailing address and uh, an FRN, a federal registration number. So with, with those prerequisites, you're pretty much good to sign up for any of those exams. Um, currently, uh, the VECs that are actively doing fully remote exams um, include uh, GLARG, the Greater Los Angeles Area Amateur Radio Group, VEC, um, W5YI VEC, uh, and ARRL VEC for fully remote exams. There are small groups from Laurel VEC and Anchorage VEC that are also um, starting to use the system. Um, some are just trialing it for in-person. Um, some are starting to use it for fully remote exams just to try it out. Um, and there are, of course, another uh, a number of other VECs that are interested. Um, but those are really the big three right now, ARRL, W5Y, and GLARG are really the three that are running the majority of the fully remote sessions. So um, that's kind of if you're looking for sessions, that's where to start. Uh, it's worth noting that uh, GLARG actually offers uh, free exams for students, minors, um, military personnel, and frontline um, uh, uh, workers. So that's a really cool thing that they just started offering this year to support um, those in those groups. Uh, so that's been really great. Uh, the others often uh, often charge a nominal fee just to help with administrative costs. Um, but that's pretty normal. So that's on the uh, applicant side. Uh, for VE teams uh, to get started, um, it, it's 
pretty straightforward. Uh, we have some more details at uh, the Ham Study blog. So if you go to blog.hamstudy.org, um, blog.hamstudy.org, that has a couple articles that kind of talk about um, getting started. Uh, we have a Discord, which is an online chat um, community where we offer support and have all the teams that are using the system uh, chatting, sharing best practices, uh, helping find other teams to train with. Um, and really, that's the main thing. So you'd need to be a volunteer examiner with one of the big three um, VECs that's currently supporting fully remote exams. So if you're a VE team, um, and then you need to get explicit permission from your VEC to allow you to do this. And that's really the key one. Um, as anyone who is a VE team lead knows, uh, if you're giving exams and the VEC didn't authorize you to give exams, those are going to be invalid. You're going to be throwing away those exams. They're not going to process them if they weren't done per their policies. So some of those VECs have very particular training policies. They want you to shadow some other teams for a while. Um, most teams are very open to have observers and just come and learn. And uh, it's definitely recommended to attend several sessions. Um, you know, I would say at least a half dozen or a dozen sessions with various different teams, see different methods of doing things, um, write up your own documentation, take the generic documentation we provided, optimize it for yourself, um, or use like AWRL has their own documentation page now where they're um, sharing their instructions and the VEC specific rules that they have. Because um, those can vary, right? Some VECs might not require a second camera or they have different ID requirements or something like that. So it's important that you're just familiar with your VEC's requirements. And then once you've trained up, um, we have a, a sandbox environment too, a training environment for the software that you can just play around in and run fake exams through it. Um, and then once you're trained up and ready to go, you get the approval from the VEC, um, and then you get the keys for the production environment where you can start listing real sessions and start uh, licensing real people. Um, and the really cool thing about all this is those sessions being fully digital now, uh, all the VECs, as far as I know, are accepting that digitally. Um, and they're also submitting, submitting digitally to um, the FCC. So when everything's up and running uh, with the FCC's databases, uh, we're having licenses, sometimes even same day processing, um, usually by the next business day, uh, licenses are posted. And that's been really exciting, especially for new hams getting their um, tickets. Uh, it's it's rare to hear the stroke alpha golf or stroke alpha echo for upgrades these days, uh, which is kind of fun. Oh, it is. Uh, so, yeah. so yeah, that's kind of how you can get started. Um, but definitely the, the big one there to call out is just, you know, training and, and observing. Uh, these are new systems, right? And especially if you look at the timeline, we just started doing this in March. So we're not even, you know, eight months out from developing this. And there are, of course, things that are changing a lot. We're making improvements to the software all the time. We're taking in feature requests. We're fixing bugs. We're finding new corner cases. Um, and all these different teams are finding new and better ways to use the various pieces of software. So like how to use Zoom. Uh, if you're running a one-person session, it's pretty straightforward. Um, but if you're running a 100-person session and you have 70 or 80 VEs logged into that session helping you, and this is what we actually do with Glarg. I've helped with a number of those sessions. You'll have you know, 20 breakout rooms with 15 of those being exam rooms um, with, you know, three or four VEs each. So in case a VE loses connection plus a candidate, you'll have a pre-check room to help check the candidate's environment, run the camera around the room, make sure that they can share their ID properly and that they don't, they, all their questions are answered before the exam. Um, and, and sessions like that, they take a lot of familiarity with the tools you need to make sure that people know how to use Zoom properly, that people know how to use exam tools properly, and that they're comfortable navigating those systems, right? When a candidate shares their screen, if they're sharing a screen from a Windows machine versus a Apple Mac machine or a Linux machine, it presents itself differently to Zoom. 
in order for them to share or in order for them to close the right programs, you just have to be familiar with that. So you really need VEs that are comfortable with technology um, or at least someone in the room that's comfortable with the technology to make sure that you can ensure the exam, exam integrity and that everything's set up properly. So my brief soapbox yeah, on that topic as well. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's the next thing is the process for, for offering this as far as software and hardware and personnel. Um, you know, you've mentioned cameras and, and, you know, this is something that we're fighting, you know, with, with, with teaching high school and, you know, online right now and, and some of the hybrid setups and, and right now I've got both in person and online that I'm doing at the same time. And, you know, there are certain security things that you can do to help ensure, uh, that, you know, the testing is valid. So, you know, you mentioned cameras. Uh, that's one, unfortunately, I'm not able to pull off. Um, but there are, there are ways to, to make it more secure. So talk a little bit about some of the security things and, and the hardware that's involved and, and a little bit about the exam tools as far as the integrity goes and validity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we can kind of start one by one there. So from a basic hardware requirements perspective, um, the goal, of course, here is to have your volunteer examiner. So the FCC requires that three volunteer examiners are observing the exam in progress. So our default recommendation is that you have four volunteer examiners in a session minimum, um, because often someone's connection will drop, as we all know from our Zoom calls these days. <laughs> so, you know, at minimum of four VEs is usually a good idea. In case one drops out, then the other three can sign. Um, and you can always bring in another one just to help cover it. Otherwise, technically the exam gets invalidated and the candidate would have to restart. So we want to try to avoid that. Um, so that's kind of from a personnel requirement. It's kind of the three to one is the bare minimum, but four to one is really what's recommended for um, just for improving your throughput and, and, and dealing with situations. Um, the candidate, of course, needs to have a webcam. Uh, you need Your VEs need webcams as well, usually, because they want to be able to see faces, make sure they're paying attention. Um, everyone needs a way to communicate with audio bidirectionally. Um, candidates, while they're taking the exam, are not allowed to wear headphones because they might be piping answers in through their headphones, for example. Um, generally, teams only allow like one monitor, um, and you want to be in an environment that's not cluttered. So the best candidate setup that we have is actually in like a restroom or in a closet where there's nothing, um, where you can empty it out and just make it an empty space. You can lock the door. You can make sure no one walks in during the exam because then, again, that might invalidate it. Um, you can make sure the candidate's not looking around at stuff, that there's not a window that someone's standing behind and holding up answers. You know, these are the, the things we have to think about that we haven't had most of those happen. Um, and that environment is really helpful. So, for example, if you have a candidate in a restroom on a chair with a laptop and a camera, that's very good. Um, some teams will require a second camera, so they might take their cell phone or a tablet device and hook it up to the same Zoom conference and then get like a side angle so they can see to make sure that, you know, the computer doesn't have any crib sheets on it, um, that there are no other things lying around. And it just gives them better situational awareness, really, because you want to make sure that the VEs know what's going on in that space. Um, the VEs themselves, you know, there, there are some policies that vary between different groups. Sometimes they're very explicit about having VEs turn off their videos and mute their um, microphones. Um, so they're not distracting the candidate. Um, some VE teams want those on so they can make sure all the VEs are still there and didn't go to sleep or walk off and take a lunch break while the candidate's <laughs> taking their exam. Right? Um, and that actually brings up an important point around VE integrity, which is actually one of the biggest concerns because you have 
a whole bunch of people that are running these exams and it's really easy to just stop paying attention, right? It does take someone that's actively paying attention and making sure they're doing the right thing. So, I mean, the VE organizations, VEC organizations have always been trust-based with your VE team leads, you know, bringing in VEs that they know and trust. And especially now with the remote world, if you don't trust those folks, if you never met them in person, you don't know who they are, that can be very difficult. So um, the teams actually I'm working with the closest now are the ones that I've been helping develop these tools with. So we all know each other very well, but I've never actually met any of them in person, right? But I've spent hundreds of hours on phone, on calls with them over the last you know, six months. Um, but typically what you'll have is you'll have an existing VE team with established relationships with their VEs that are all from one area that come together and, and form a team now that all gets trained on the online systems to use exam tools um, and then run those exams. So that's a little aside on kind of VE integrity and team dynamics, which sure. I think is really interesting, right? Especially in this day and age. Um, we've run exams where our VEs are spread across the US, including Guam. Um, and the candidates are around the world, they can be. So it's pretty pretty neat to see how we can support. We've been testing a lot of uh, servicemen and women uh, overseas uh, at military bases that otherwise wouldn't have been able to get their license while they were overseas. So that's pretty fun. Um, okay, so we addressed uh, candidate requirements, uh, some of the cheating things. Um, I think uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more, actually. So, so exam integrity is, of course, the, the utmost concern for all of this, right? Immediately when we started doing this, we had to be exceptionally careful that we can't poke holes into it. So any weird corner case that we could think of that anyone's brought up to us for like, hey, this is a way that someone could cheat the system. Great, let's take it, let's address it, let's seal that hole, if you will. Let's let's fix that and make sure that that's not a concern. And that's a lot of times with processes, you know, with uh, a room suite beforehand, making sure that they only have one monitor hooked up, um, that they're not wearing the headphones, that, you know, shades are drawn and doors are locked so that no one walks in on the room that you can hear the audio in the room, um, that you check, you know, some teams take it to the extreme and they'll check under keyboards. They'll have them move a camera around and look under their seat and under their chair and at the ceiling and the floor and the windows. And, you know, there's always diminishing returns on some of that, but the intent is is valid, right? Is making sure that the environment isn't feeding answers to the candidate. Um, but it's pretty obvious, honestly. So it, what, what's really interesting, and we've got some videos online, training videos and a presentation that I've given on the topic as well, when, when the applicant's actually taking the exam and you're on a large monitor at home as a volunteer examiner, you've got the candidate's screen share and you've got the candidate's video large on your screen. You can full screen it. You can literally see their eyes moving as they're reading each question and answer. You can see we had one candidate kept looking to the right. And we're like, what are they looking at? What are they? So we just asked them, hey, what are you looking at to the right? And he's like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, right there. What did you, what did you look at? And he's like, oh, I was looking at the scroll bar on the right to scroll down to the next question, Right. A funny little thing, but that level of detail is what you notice when you're you're actually watching this candidate much, much closer than in a typical exam session, right? In-person sessions, you might have 10, 20, 50, 100 candidates in a room um, and, you know, a couple VEs in that room watching them, right? At least three. Uh, but there's no way you know if any one of those is slipping out a note sheet in their pocket and kind of looking past their exam to pull out a note sheet. Um, so I... Uh, a lot of VEs have actually commented that they feel the fully remote methods are actually of higher integrity um, for any individual exam that's given, uh, which is very interesting. It was really interesting to get that feedback when we started running some exams. And, and, and like that's honest feedback from actual VEs and VECs that have been seeing them. They feel very comfortable with it as long as the teams are trained and they know what they're doing and they're following the processes that have been put in place. 
so that that's pretty cool. And I, I definitely encourage you, feel free to look at some of the documentation we have online um, and, and just kind of get an idea for what that looks like uh, to actually run a session. Uh, and, and by all means, if you're a VE, reach out and get involved and uh, sign up your teams, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. All right. All, all good stuff, uh, good information, and so I'm, I'm sure this has raised some questions, so uh, we're going to open up the phone lines here in just a moment, so um, get ready to give us a call at 859-982-7373. We'll give that number again here in a minute, or uh, tweet us, or uh, again, if you're logged into Spreaker, you can uh, type a comment, and that'll pop up here. And uh, we'll come back and do that and talk a little more with Marcel right after this word from ICOM America right here on Ham Talk Live. Ham for the holidays. ICOM's new ID52A and IC705 give hours of fun and enjoyment working your favorite bands this holiday season. ICOM's newest handheld amateur radio is the ID52A. Larger radio, larger color display, and louder audio. This VHF UHF digital transceiver is much more than just a replacement for the ID51, but also a new way of communicating. This color display is 2.3 inches for exceptional viewability and the audio is 80% louder. This multifunction dual band D-Star transceiver supports DR mode for easy access to local repeaters based on internal GPS information as well as terminal and access point modes. The ID52A also has Bluetooth for audio and data control, providing improved mobility and control. And for the first time in the amateur radio industry, you can now send photos from a connected Android device. Other features include wideband receiver with a guaranteed range of 144 to 148 and 440 to 450 MHz. VHF on both bands, UHF on both bands, and one of each with the dual DV mode. Integrated GPS with grid square locator, micro SD card slot, micro USB. USB for data transfer programming and charge, and it's IPX7 waterproof. The ID52A is the perfect companion to the IC705. Both use compatible batteries and headsets, and you can use the same Android app for D-Star operation. The IC705 is the perfect sidekick for hams that like to enjoy what both the great indoors and outdoors have to offer. It's the perfect QRP companion. Base station features and functionality at the tip of your fingers in a portable packaging covering HF, 6 meters, 2 meters, and 7 centimeters. This compact rig weighs in at just over two pounds with RF direct sampling for most of the HF band and IF sampling for frequencies above 25 megahertz. It has a 4.3 inch touchscreen with live band scope and waterfall, 5 watts with the battery BP272 or 10 watts with a power supply, sideband CW, AM, FM, and full D-Star functions with a touchscreen, micro USB connector, Bluetooth, wireless LAN, integrated GPS and GPS logger, a micro SD card slot, the speaker mic HM243 comes standard and supports QRP operations. And the perfect accessory for the 705 is the optional backpack LC192 with a special compartment for your IC705 and room for accessories for soda activations or a day in the park, and it's shipping now. Visit icomamerica.com slash amateur for more information on ICOM radios. Join the conversation. Give us a call at 859-982-7373. Again, the number to call is 859-982-7373. Or, if you'd rather type than talk, tweet us at HamTalkLive. Now, here's Neil Rapp with more Ham Talk Live. 
Here's the snap. Rap takes the rig. He breaks through the pileup. He's on 80. Now 40. Now 20. 15. 10. Two meters. Touchdown. Ham Talk Live. Welcome back to Ham Talk Live. Be sure to check out ICOM America and all their new stuff over at ICOMAmerica.com slash amateur. Ham Talk Live is on the air every Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time at HamTalkLive.com. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And it's time for your questions right now. Again, the phone number is 859-982-7373. Give us a call and uh, we'll take your questions here uh, with Marcel Stieber, AI6MS, about remote testing. We'll talk a little bit about hybrid uh, testing here in a minute, too. Uh, but first, we have... The N9GSU Joke of the Week. Now it's time for the Ham Talk Live Ham Radio Joke of the Week. The part of the show where Rick tells us a ham radio joke. The Ham Talk Live Ham Radio Joke of the Week is brought to you by QRM Labs. Now, here's Rick Garrett, N9GSU, with today's Ham Talk Live Joke of the Week. Many years ago, when I was taking my general exam, I thought, sure, I would pass the 13-word-per-minute Morse code requirement. Turns out, my hopes were dashed. This has been the Ham Talk Live Ham Radio Joke of the Week with Rick Garrett in 9GSU. Tune in again next week for another joke from Rick. Oh, there we go. Rick's hopes were dashed. All right, well, the phone number again, 859-982-7373, or tweet us, it's at HamTalkLive. Um, and if you're listening to us on WTWW or on the podcast edition of the show, uh, you won't be able to reach us live since uh, we're recording this on Thursday night. So give us a call, 859-982-7373, and we'll check uh for tweets and comments here um, in just a moment. But let's talk a little bit about uh, the hybrid exams and and how that works um, and some of those tools that can be used for, for electronically grading the um, exams. Uh, I know we've talked about a couple of them. You're, you're using a, a thing called GradeCam. Uh, which my wife actually uses at, at her school, and I've got one called ZipGrade that I've been using for many years, and and I know that's been discussed uh, in in some of the um, Laurel VEC uh, discussions of, of electronic grading. So let's let's talk a little bit about some of the hybrid stuff. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up, Neil. It's uh, something that a lot of people asked when we first started developing the fully remote exam methods back in March, they're like, oh, well, how long is this going to work? How much effort are you going to put in? There's, there's no point. We'll be back in person soon enough, right? Well, time will tell when we actually can start doing more in-person exams. Right now, it's obviously very limited and varies quite a bit 
state to state. Um, but one of the big benefits of all this is that really most of the work that you know Richard and, and other developers have done in putting in for this version two, for this fully remote exam version of exam tools, it's completely applicable to in-person exams. And that's what's really great. So we have some teams that are currently exclusively only running in-person exams still, um, but they're now using the upgraded version of the system. Um, and that's been great. Um, your, your comment about grain tool, uh, or GradeCam, um, GradeCam is built into exam tools. So GradeCam, uh, for those not familiar with it, is a piece of software that uses a cell phone or a tablet camera or your webcam even, um, and will instantly grade the answer sheets from the candidates in your session. Um, and that's a really cool thing. So instead of having the typical you know, hole-punched answer templates that you're using, which also limits the number of randomizations you can have, um, you can literally have individual exams generated for each applicant they're all different, they're all randomized, they all have different question order, whatever. Um, and it's a pretty cool way to then uh, administer the exam. The applicant fills out on their little bubble form uh, that's just printed on eight and a half by 11 paper, their applicant PIN number, which is given to them when they register online, which we haven't talked about at all, but they can register either with a kiosk tablet, like on an in-person session or ahead of time on the website um, and put in all their info so you don't have to fill out all those 605 forms. Um, and then all of the paperwork is digitized, right? They they fill out, uh, sorry, I'm bouncing back and forth a little bit. So they on the answer sheet, they put in their PIN number. Uh, they'll put in the uh, exam number as well because it's a randomized exam. Um, and then they'll fill in all their answers. And then once they're done, they just walk to the front of the room. One of the VEs takes a tablet, for example, or their laptop webcam or just their cell phone and scans it. And literally instantaneously, it shows up on their screen. Here's the score. Congratulations, you passed or didn't, right? Um, and that's really cool. That updates in the system. And then with the new version, everyone can sign digitally as well. And digital signatures are completely valid in all 50 states. So uh, each of your VEs can log in uh, or just sign on the other computer with their password and say, yes, I'm signing for this um, candidate. And all the paperwork is digital. The CSCE or Certificate of Successful Completion of Exam gets emailed to the applicant right away um, once, you, once you close out the session and stuff. And uh, that's really cool. So with with all these improvements to the system really it's not just enabling fully remote exams but it also like enhances the in-person experience so what we've seen start to happen is we have some teams that are still running you know fully in-person sessions uh, i mentioned the drive-in exam sessions before uh, those literally are happening right now so uh, candidates will drive up with a car they'll roll down their window just to crack and get the answer sheet and the exam book slid in through the crack um, the VEs will look through the car, make sure it's all set up, and then they'll stand outside if the window's rolled up and their mask's on. Uh, once they're done, they can just hold up the exam sheet to the window and they can scan it through the window. So there's no contact of paperwork touching back and forth after that initial pass. Um, and then all the paperwork can get signed digitally. The candidate can do it on their cell phone. The VEs can do it on their laptop or cell phone or tablet or whatever, um, and then submit all the paperwork digitally. So that's really powerful. Um, for the hybrid exams, uh, you can do a mix. So in a classroom environment, for example, or at, you know, you know, your local um, club meeting room where you're holding your exams, you could have a choice. Uh, candidates can come in. They could either bring their own laptop or own tablet, or you could buy a lot of our uh, teams are buying like uh, low-cost tablets like the Amazon Fire tablets or similar ones that when they go on sale, they'll pick up a couple of them. And then they can hand those out to uh, candidates when they come into a test session. Now, if a candidate prefers to use paper and take a paper exam, no problem. Give them one of the printed paper randomized tests that you have and give them a blank uh, bubble form answer sheet that they can fill out. 
um, and they'll still be in the session exactly the same. They're graded, you know, one's graded through GradeCam, one's graded through the browser. Um, they both just work seamlessly and all go into the same session paperwork and get submitted the same way. So that's what's really powerful about the whole system. Um, and it's great. We should mention that it's no cost right now. Donations are always welcome. Um, and buying antenna signal sticks uh, helps pay for it. Uh, <laughs> but teams are using it all the time and volunteers help support it. So that online community, we've got a bunch of experienced support volunteers, myself being one of them, um, that kind of help out teams, answer questions, debug, help get people set up in the system um, and just train folks to use it. Because really, all of our goals are the same, right? And And whether that's you know, one VEC or the other VEC, uh, whatever state you're in, we're all trying to get more people licensed um, correctly, safely, and in a way that we can continue growing the hobby. So it's been really fun to be part of that and just help out all these different teams. Yeah, and, and for those that aren't familiar with like the grade cam and zip grade kinds of things, it's it's kind of like Scantron, but you don't have to have a Scantron machine to, to decode everything. And the thing that I like about it is, you know, for school anyway, um, is if if I make a mistake and I accidentally fill in the wrong one, when you when you go in and change it, it automatically regrades everything. So that way it, you know, it fixes it all and you don't have to go through like on the old Scantrons and like try to white out, you know, the. the the print it, <laughs> the print out on the uh, on the Scantron form and everything. It it updates everything and it even gives you statistics so you can see, you know, which questions people are missing and and uh, averages and those kinds of things. And that's what the, the grade cam and the zip grade kind of thing do. They're, they're either apps or uh, software through a camera, and the camera is the optical scanner, and it it looks for um, the, the colored in um, circles in a particular place and uh, and grades it with with very very high accuracy. Um, and I've been been using it in the classroom for um, many years and and just absolutely love it. Um, and, and you know it, it's it's another tool. Um, and every VE team has to decide what they're comfortable with, and every VEC has their own regulations. So make sure you, you know, make sure you check out, you know, <laughs> and make sure your VEC is on board with the technology that you're using because there are some varied opinions out there, Marcel. I don't know if you've heard that, but. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to quickly sarcasm. mention uh, you mentioned the <laughs> S word, the famous Scantron word. Uh, the other thing to point out there is that Scantrons are proprietary piece of paper that you have to buy from an organization. So yes. you need to have stash of those available. You need to order those ahead of time uh, or buy them, find a store that stocks them and to purchase them. Uh, with GradeCam, you can literally just print them out. So we have, um, and actually AWRL just recently changed to using exam tools for their exam generation. Um, starting into this year, everyone's um, asked to switch to that. Um, that was pretty big deal because uh you know, you can generate AWRL formed exams now as well and either use GradeCam or use the AWRL templates depending on um, what you wanted to do. So those are all compatible now, which is pretty cool. Uh, but those you can just print out on 8.5 by 11. So the same printers that you're using for your signage or your posters or just at home, you can now print out answer sheets. You can scale them and change the size too if you need to. Uh, GradeCam doesn't care, just looks at it and scans it. Um, you can print one out the size of your wall if you wanted to and scan it. So that's pretty fun. Yeah, and it, it it just makes things so much easier. And the Scantron forms are not cheap. 
No. I remember buying a lot of those in, in college. You always get them oh, from yeah. the bookstore because it's the only spot that sold them, and eh, 25 right. cents a piece or more, and they definitely add up. Oh, yeah, they add up. And, and, and when you're you're teaching high school and, and you're the one buying them and, and, and sending them out to all the kids and not charging them, and yeah, that, that's why the bookstore at the universities sell those uh, one by one because <laughs> it adds up quickly, so... Yeah, it's great. You can just throw it on a printer and and go with uh, with the grade cam. Oh, are you there? Yes, I'm still here. Sorry, oh, I didn't okay. know. Yeah. Oh, so okay. so yeah. I mean, grade cam. That's that's a big one to point out. And I think you know, just while we're on the topic, still with uh, in person. Uh, versus, you know, hybrid exams. It, it's been really fun to see this sort of development, right? In amateur radio, one of the big things we always talk about is, you know, how do we innovate? How do we stay on the forefront of technology and keep pushing things forward? Um, and that's really what's been so fun about, you know, working with this team. Um, and this team has now grown from those couple dozen to, I think, four or 500 VEs now that we have uh, set up in, in exam tools, running exams literally every day. It's pretty pretty amazing to see how this has scaled up over the last couple months. Um you know, when, when we started back in March uh, and, you know, going right into April, uh, VECs were very supportive, but of course, skeptical, right? We had to prove ourselves. We had to show that we had good, well-established processes. It was very limited which teams were allowed to operate. Um, but right from the beginning, AWRL, W5Y, and GLARG all had teams, you know, starting to run exams slowly but surely um, and just slowly ramping that up. Um, like I mentioned, GLARG has really been fun. Um, I'd never worked with them before. I'm based in California as well, but... Um, they've been really supportive of all these and really trying to break the system literally with, you know, how big of a session can we run? And, that, and that's been really fun. Um, back when I was at Cal Poly, uh, we ran the freshman licensing initiative uh, where uh, every freshman electrical engineer uh, took their technician exam as uh, their second midterm for the introductory electrical engineering class in the fall. Um, and we actually just did that remotely now uh, with GLARG's help and the free exams they were able to offer for students. Um, we ran you know, almost 100 students through remote exams uh, in the last month here uh, to get them all licensed uh, for their coursework and for their curriculum. So it's been great just to see how we can kind of still innovate and take advantage of these tools that we've built and try out different things, um, again, with that same goal of just getting more people licensed in the right way. So um, that's been really, really fun to keep going. 859-982-7373 is phone number. We're going to uh, wrap things up here with uh, Marcel uh, very soon. So if you'd like to call, now is the time. 859-982-7373. In the uh, comments here, we have Troy, W9KVR, another teacher, uh, another science teacher. Hello from the flatlands of Illinois. And he says, oh, the Scantron. Yeah. it's been a long time since i've actually used a scantron a lot of my colleagues are still using it but i I just i I like my uh my little ipad app a whole lot better uh chris a4cb is listening from florida so thank you chris for being there as well and um not too many questions so i guess that means we did a good job yeah and actually i just got a correction in on my chat coming in here uh, in the system, we have over a thousand VE credentials uh, in the system now. So we've actually ramped up even more. I can't keep track of it. They come in so quickly these days. But um, over 1,100 
different VE credentials. So that's, you know, each each VE gets a credential for the VEC they're accredited for when they come into our system. They have to, of course, show proof of accreditation so that we can um, authorize them in the system. Um, but that's pretty impressive to see. Um, some of the VECs are just creeping up on, you know, three, 400 uh, VEs in their team or in their VEC that are authorized uh, on the system now. So that's been really fun. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, I'm glad uh, that you were able to come on here and, and share about this. And so people are a little more familiar and maybe a little more at ease with it. And uh, over time that, you know, will become more and more familiar, I'm sure. And uh, we'll mention, too, that, uh, that you did a, a whole presentation on this over at the um, uh, the virtual the ham expo, virtual ham expo. Yes. yeah <laughs> yes the qso today it was i blanked out on the name of of uh, eric's show for a second but uh you did a whole thing on that and, and that's linked in on your qrz page so if people want to watch that they can they can watch that and and we've also sent out some links tell everybody a little bit about the links that uh that we put in the show description here yeah, so we've got some links sent out. Um, those will include details for where to sign up for exams. That's hamstudy.org slash sessions if you're looking to take online exams. Um, we also have the links to the blog, so blog.hamstudy.org. Um, that's got uh, some of the articles there from a couple of months ago, but they're still valid with kind of the release process and how to get involved. So if you're a VE team that wants to get involved and start using the system, uh, we've got links to all the training videos um, that I've put together and uh, documentation and then get you into our Discord. That's really the, the the online chat community that's been super active and really, really helpful to answer questions and find other teams to shadow with and to get involved. So um, those links, um, and then like you said, the link to my QRZ, so QRZ.com slash DB slash AI6MS, um, and that'll have all the links uh, for my other presentations and specifically for uh, the fully remote exams uh, as well. So hopefully those will be useful, and you're welcome to reach out to me via Twitter or email. I'm good on QRZ, uh, or join the Volunteer Examiner Discord, and we'll happily chat there and uh, discuss anything. Uh, it's always it's always really good. We love having uh, you know fresh blood come in and new VEs come join the system because they always bring a new perspective. Um, anytime we have an observer, I always talk with them afterwards. It's always great to see what people notice, what they like, what they don't like, what they're concerned about, um, and seeing that we have an answer for everything. Right? If someone comes in and asks some question for some obscure form of cheating that we haven't really thought about before, that's great. Right? We want to hear about it. We want to know how we can make this better and how we can continue improving it. Right? Um, the one listener question that's probably out there is, has cheating occurred? Um, yes, there have been isolated incidents where exam integrity has been called into question. Um, it's not always clear if someone's explicitly cheated, but when you have a poor video connection or it's a little bit dark or their audio or video drops out for seconds to you know dozens of seconds or a minute at a time, you have to validate the exam. And that's pretty straightforward. And the nice thing is in this environment, it's not life or death. We're doing amateur radio exams. We can simply ask the candidate, hey, you know, we have to invalidate your exam. It's really not working with this test environment. How about you come back next weekend or, you know, go to a coffee shop with better internet um, and come back and we'll, we'll re-administer the exam whenever you're ready and have a better exam environment, right? So that's what's great. None of this is time critical. Um, so we can just, if in doubt, invalidate the exam or pass on that exam um, and then come back another time when you can do it right. So... 
Very good. Well, uh, Troy W nine KVR says hasn't touched the the, the Scantron in years, but uh, they're scheduled to have an in person VE session in a couple of weeks, and might have to change with uh, the guidelines for COVID being changed around. So he's going to uh, definitely take a look at the links. Uh, we also got a call in on the phone, so let's go to the phones. Hello, good evening. Welcome to Ham Talk Live. Hi, this is Thomas, 86KW. I had a question about this whole general uh, VE um, approach to uh, to testing and that uh, the multiple choice approach, it seems to be um, less than, than uh, really rigorous in terms of asking someone, do you know how to do this? You know, because giving them choices sort of like lets them narrow down to get, you know, figuring out what, what's, what's the, the close enough answer as opposed to saying, here's a blank piece of paper, tell us what the answer is. So um, what's your thought on that? Is it, a, is it a rigorous way to testing or is it just a vocabulary test? Yeah, that's a great question, Thomas. I'm glad you're asking that. Uh, the, you know, from the volunteer examiner side, um, we're following the guidelines from the FCC and specifically the NCV, so that's the National Conference of Volunteer Exam Coordinators, um, and they have the question pool committee that actually runs the question pool. So I know this is a little bit roundabout answer to your question, but um, with the way that it's currently set up, and um, that that's where those questions come from. Now, the question pool committee, they we- meet, I think, weekly um, and are constantly working to update the pools. Um, every two years, you know, they rotate out, um, or I think it's every one to two years, depending on the exact rotation, uh, the, one of the question pools changes out. And they're absolutely looking at those sorts of things all the time. Um, I can't speak to it specifically because I'm not part of that committee. Um, but I know that a number of the questions, especially with the new technician pool um, that came out two years ago now, I think, uh, it's quite different um, with a lot of the questions you know, being changed so that it's a little bit more rigorous, if you will. Um, but to your question, you know, uh, multiple choice exams, they only test so much, right? You're giving them the answers. Um, uh, it's also worth pointing out that the FCC testing in the past was also multiple choice. So um, obviously they had the in-person, like the Morse code portion of it, the element ones that they brought in. Um, but uh, that's that's how it's running today. Now, to ask me personally the question, do I think that we should do a different form of exam for amateur radio licenses? Um, I'm not sure. I think for the technician exam, you know, the intent is really you you want them to understand enough about the rules, the regulations, some of the basic safety safety measures, um, and how to be a good on-the-air operator. So when to ID, I how much to ID, completely. what yeah. sort of power to use, et cetera. Um, and I think that's really the main main part that I, I would call out there for, you know, getting them started, get them the basic info, um, and then make sure that uh, they learn on the air because 90% of the job learning is on the job, right? I agree. I agree with that. The text um, that license is, is opening the door. Just should make sure that you don't hurt yourself with uh, something that you buy. Uh, but when you get to higher levels and you start doing new things or, or different things, or you're trying to show competence, um, I'd say that the the um, these, the the bar should be higher. Um, not just the technical questions, but but the way they're they're. Um, Put to you should be should demand uh, uh, that. that. That's all my. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you very much. It's been a very interesting uh, discussion, and uh, 
And as a California guy, I've worked a lot of um, SLO guys and, and learn by doing is, is a really great way. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Thomas. Yeah, no, learn by doing, go Cal Poly, go Mustangs, right? Um, but yeah, no, I think your, your point about the upper level exams, you know, making them more rigorous or, or how to do that. It's something I've thought about for sure is, is, you know, I would love there to be a practical portion to some of those exams. Um, but again, the, the hobby is so wide, bright, like so so broad and so many different aspects to the hobby for, you know, whether someone's in microwave or an HF or um, they only do license exams, right? These days, my primary amateur radio is license exams and checking to an Aries net once a week um, and then a little bit of tower climbing. But uh, that's, you know, it's each their own. So I think, you know, yeah, rigorous questions, obviously. Um, changing the question format, I think it's an interesting idea. I, I would recommend you reach out to the question pool committee and see what their thoughts are on that as well. Um, uh, they always have an email there on their website, ncvec.org. Um, you can find that the National Convent Conference of Volunteer Examiners, exam coordinators. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, I thanks. appreciate you sharing that, too. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll second that. And 7-3, uh, this is not a, a new discussion. <laughs> uh, this has been a discussion that's been going on. I've been a ham for like 43 years now. And, and this is, discussion has gone on ever since then. And there's, we could go on and, and do a whole show about it. Uh, but yeah, you know, talk to the NCVEC. They are the people who, who come up with that. And, and the original, um, de- you know, development of topics, the FCC came up with those and then they, they said, you know, how to test these certain things. And it's always been, um, a controversy of, you know, do we make it harder? Do we make it easier? How many licenses do we have? You know, the discussion continues. And so, um, I think that's something that's constantly changing and, and, um, you know, submit your comments to the, to the NCVEC and they're the ones doing that. I know we had, uh, a project where we were looking at, at changing some of the questions because some of them, uh, just, you know, were just asking, um, factual questions rather than testing the intent. And, um, I had a big proposal all ready to go and everything. And then all of a sudden the, the question committee, uh, all of a sudden had the same idea. <laughs> and so it didn't go anywhere, but, but, um, yeah, that, that's, that's nothing new. And, um, yep. and one other thing I would opinion. add, uh, Neil is, you know, I, I often get the question when we're talking about, uh, well, remote exams and, you know, you know, being a no code ham and, you know, what are my thoughts in that space? And especially around ham crams as well, you know, and the freshman licensing initiative we do at Cal Poly where we're licensing all these freshman electrical engineering students, you know, a lot of times I'll get asked the question by the community is like, well, you know, but we're like, why, why are we licensing them? Like that's, that's not valuable. Like we should only be licensing them if they're going to use it. And, you know, most of them aren't going to use it. It's a waste, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And, and I, I give a thought exercise, kind of my opinions on this matter. Um, I'm very strongly of the opinion that the more people that know about amateur radio in the world, the better off we're going to be. So more people know that amateur radio exists as a hobby, that the FCC exists as an agency that uh, regulates the radio frequencies and has rules and regulations around that, um, that, you know, they understand basic, some basic electronics and some basic safety measures around radios um, and interference. Um, I'd say that, just that sharing of knowledge, whether or not that person ever uses their amateur radio license again in their life, um, that I think is a really uh, 
really helpful thing for our community as a whole um, and for society, right? A lot of these um, people that get their licenses, a lot of these students that get their amateur radio licenses, they'll, they're going on to become the next manager at some company, the next engineer at some medical devices company that's working on the next pacemaker or that's working on, I don't know, the next, you know, tablet or laptop computer or Kindle product or something. Um, and they will have this background knowledge knowing that some of these, you know, skills and techniques exist or that some of these regulations exist. And I think that that's inherently valuable um, to the greater society from that sense, but definitely to the amateur radio hobby because um, how many times do you have to explain to someone what amateur radio is, right? So every person yeah. we license is one fewer per- people, and, one fewer person that and, you have and to explain And you that left to. out one important, uh, one important um, thing about people who need to know about ham radio, and that's, uh, you know, not only are, are there people working on medical devices and all those kinds of things, but there are people that are on homeowners association boards. Yep. Oh, absolutely. need to know about ham radio. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in that boat myself right now. Uh, I'm looking at my J-pole that's inside the building, right? Because you can't put anything on the outside. So, yeah, absolutely, right? And and that's exactly the point, right? The more people that are familiar with it and understand it and and recognize the value that it brings, um, the the better off. And regulatory is absolutely a a factor in that as well. Uh, It's been really fun. We've had a number of professors at Cal Poly, um, including the former department chair. They're all licensed. Um, and they definitely set the example. And when students see that and they see how that's helped their hobby, um, you know, I actually, my amateur radio license got me my job. Um, so uh, those are all fun examples that I think are really relevant and just, you know, go to show we should get more people licensed. So keep up the good work, VEs. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, Troy says, uh, my father-in-law is one of them. And, and uh, yeah, people who get licensed early on kind of put it on the shelf but then later on you know there they are and and that happens a lot well we have gone over time here marcel but it's been a good conversation i think uh we've, we've learned a lot tonight about um the testing and, and and uh different ways to do that and uh different ways to um help the security and validity of all of this. So I, I thank you for coming on the show and talking with us and, um, and we'll see how all this progresses as time marches on. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Neil. It's uh, really great to share it with more people and just help uh, more VEs and teams and hams understand what we're doing um, how they can contribute and uh, how we can keep uh, making the hobby better. So thanks very much for having me on the show, Neil. Seven threes. All right, Marcel, 7-3 to you. And that's a wrap for this week's edition of Ham Talk Live. Thanks to my guest, Marcel Stieber, AI6MS, and everybody out there in cyberspace for listening, calling in, typing in, and invite you back next Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern time, when, again, Rob Sherwood, NC0B, will be back uh, to take your calls and talk a little bit about the IC705. Uh, for a list of all of our upcoming guests, visit hamtalklive.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a review. Uh, that's the the best thing you can do so other people can find us faster. So for now, this is Neil Rapp, WB9VPG, saying 7375, and may the good DX be yours. Don't, 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 don't,